Fresh manna fell to the ground as a gift from God while the Israelites were in the wilderness. This is what they ate for 40 years. It was fresh from the ovens of heaven, baked by the master baker himself. How the Israelites must have anticipated the taste and the smell of each morning's delivery. Just like the Israelites, you too can now experience the taste and smell of fresh manna. Today you will be listening to Phil Mills, pastor of Lansing Seventh-day Adventist Church. And now, here's Pastor Phil. Happy Sabbath, church. You know, after a week like this, it is always a blessing to come to the house of the Lord. What a rough week. As I've been visiting with different individuals this last week, I have been reminded afresh that I want to go home. How about you? And then I watched as individuals made their way into our capital, and our congressmen and women were rushed into hiding. And I was reminded this world is not my home. We're just a passing through. Heaven is my home. How about you? In church, the sermon that we're going to look at has been a very hard one for me to write because it's rebuked me a lot. It's been a study that as I've gone through it, I've realized in a very convicting, you know when the Holy Spirit comes to you and he says, okay, Phil, you need this. And you need to change. Got really quiet in here. I'm talking about me, not you. You're okay. You know when he comes and he does that to you, and of course it's like, well, yes, Lord, I want to change. And then he starts poking his finger in different areas and you realize, wow, I have a lot of growing before I become like Christ. I have a lot of growing to do to be able to be used by God to take the Gospel to the world. Last week we talked about that Jesus is the only one who determines when He comes. Amen? You know, sometimes we get caught up in all of these conspiracy theories and all of these worries about what's going on, and we start, I don't think we ever say this, but we start acting like it's the natural disasters, or it's the Pope, or it's any one of these different entities that determine when Jesus comes. Jesus alone determines when He comes. What do you say? Now go with me to Matthew chapter 24, and then we'll pray. The sermon last week, we had one point that we drove home all the way through. It's found in verse 14 of Matthew chapter 24. Sermon title today is Lighting Up Lansing, the Call for Unity. You know what? If I don't stop and pray now, we're not going to pray because I'm already diving into it. So would you just pause because we want God to guide us as we open His Word. Let's bow our heads and ask Him to be with us. Father in heaven, our world is in a mess right now. It's been in a mess for a while. We're seeing fracturing lines, deepening divisions, heightening rhetoric, anger, pain on multiple sides. We know that there's a commission that you've given us to take the gospel to the world, and we, we saw that commission last week, that you alone determine when you come, and that determination of your coming is the gospel to the world. Father, we need a heart work before we can do that work. 
Today, as we study about the call for unity that prepares us to take the gospel, the call to come together, I ask that you will move upon all of us here in a mighty way, that you will have mercy and in a fresh dispensation of grace, move on our hearts that we might become one in Jesus. In his name we pray, let everyone say, Amen. Matthew chapter 24, verse 14. Are you there, church? And this gospel of the kingdom must be preached in how much of the world? As a witness to how many nations? And then, what does Christ say will happen? The end will what? Will come. Before that, it's interesting, if you'll remember, we looked at all of the signs and Christ says the end is not yet. When you see these things, no, it's near, but the end isn't yet. When the gospel goes to the world, that's when the end is what, church? Here. That's when it comes. I want to go home. And where we ended the sermon last week is an appeal that many of us responded to to say, Lord, help me win how many souls? Church, one soul this next year. Have you been praying for God to guide you to that one person? I'm not asking you to raise your hand. This isn't time for us to look around and say, well, some were, some weren't. Church, I'm challenging you. Let's go forward in what God has called us to do. But as we came off that sermon, John 17 began to resonate in my mind as I was praying about what the Lord would have us look at next. John 17, take your Bibles and turn there with me if you would. Because right now, our society at large, and dare I say sometimes what happens in the world around us, has a danger of beginning to impact, hopefully not in our church here, but has a danger of beginning to impact how we interact as a church. People are angry right now. They're angry over the elections. People are angry that others are angry over the elections. They're angry about COVID-19. They're angry that some people think COVID-19 doesn't exist. They're angry that other people think that it does exist. They're angry at the government that they're not doing enough. Others are angry that the government is doing too much. People are afraid right now. They're afraid that they might get COVID-19. They're afraid that others might judge them for not worrying about COVID-19. Church, we live in a society, and I could go on for a long time. I'm not going to. Our society is divided, and you know it. You see it in the news. You listen to one side of the news, and you get a set of facts that they present that they make it out as if our world is about to end. You listen to the other side of the news, and they seem to have swapped places recently, and they're now saying that the Savior has come, and we're going to be okay going forward. Church, our world is divided. Each side has their facts. One says their scientists they put forward and their doctors they put forward. And the other side has their scientists and their doctors that they put forward. You know what I'm talking about. If you listen to one news outlet, you get one perspective. If you listen to another, you could get a completely different perspective. And sadly, sometimes those differences can spill into the interactions that happen within God's church. Could it be that maybe in a local congregation somewhere far, far away from here, there are strong feelings about various political or health topics? 
that can garner very difficult conversations that lead to rifting of friendships and relationships possibly within the church of God. As I've been visiting over this last few weeks and months, I've seen and heard from many of you the pain that everyone is in right now in the unusual circumstances we find ourselves. People are struggling with what's happening. Church, you might be struggling with what's happening here this morning. What do we do in a world where division Arguing and fighting is the modus operandi of the day. How does God's church relate? It's easy when we all agree on something. It becomes far more difficult when there's strongly held opinions on different sides of an issue. How do we move forward in answering the prayer of Jesus Christ? There in John 17. Are you there, church? Verse 20. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their words. Now, before I read verse 21, I want to share with you the importance of what we're about to read. You may remember that this is the last prayer of Christ before his crucifixion. Last words are important. As I was studying John 17, I came across a very powerful quote from Ellen White, where she says that the instruction given in John 17, we are to make a prayerful study. It is one of the most important chapters to be found in the Bible. Find that Testimonies, Volume 8, page 239. Where to find a way to make the prayer of Christ here in John 17 a reality in our lives. She says elsewhere, where to study daily the prayer of Christ and how we can make it true in our lives. What's the prayer of Christ? Let's read verse 21. That they all may be what, church? One. This isn't just a superficial oneness. A oneness that goes only as deep as a smiling as you go into the same church. This is a oneness that Christ relates to the oneness that God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit have. He says this is a oneness that is the profound oneness that the Godhead have that is so intimate and so close that the Bible refers to it as one God. He continues on. Continuing on in verse 21, as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that what? Do you think in a broken, divided, at each other's throats type of world that a church that has learned how to have the unity and the oneness of Christ, how to come together, how to set aside their differences, and how to live the gospel in reality, do you think that church would stand out like a light in the darkness? Absolutely. Matthew chapter 5, Christ says, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. There's a dream 
that you'll find in the book Early Writings. Fascinating dream. And in this dream, I won't go into too much detail, but basically there was two groups that were seen. There were those who were faithful in following God, and then there was another group that thought they were, but were not following the light that God had given. And one was praying to God the Father, and the other was praying to the alternative, which was Satan. They didn't know it. Both breathed their spirit. Both received light and power, truth and power. But the distinction between those who were following God and those who were not was one had the sweet love, peace, and joy that only God can give. They were united in a way that Satan can never counterfeit. I want that unity. Jesus wants that unity. She says we're to make this prayer our first study. Every gospel minister, every medical missionary, and may I add every church member, is to learn the science of the prayer of Christ here in John chapter 17. We're to make this our first study. I want you to notice that here in Testimonies Volume 8, Ellen White says that this prayer is a science we need to learn how to apply to our lives. It's something we can learn, and it doesn't come naturally. That's what I walk away with from here. This unity isn't going to just happen by accident in a church like evolution. It's a unity that's going to come by close studying and thinking daily. Lord, today, how can I become more united with my church family? Today, how can I make that time to build relationships with others? Today, Lord, where do I need to put my own pride and my own selfishness aside? Today, what do I need to surrender so that I can have a closer relationship, not just with my Heavenly Father, but with my brothers and sisters in church? So that in my congregation, in the people that God calls me to interact with, I can have that oneness that God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit has. Verse 22, continuing on here in John chapter 17. And the glory which you gave me, I have given them that they may be what? Just as we are one. I and them and you and me, that they may be made perfect in one. That the world may know that you sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Church, don't miss that point where he says that they be made perfect in one. The oneness that brings us closely together comes only as Jesus changes our hearts so that we learn to live like Christ. So that's the foundation. And in the last couple of minutes that we have together here, you all have heard many sermons about oneness, I'm sure. But I want to talk about what the practical unity looks like. And I would submit that there are two ingredients for oneness. If you're taking notes, you can write these down. I'll give them to you now, and then we'll unpack them over the last few minutes here together. Two ingredients of oneness. There is the ingredient that's required for individual unity among members. And then there's an ingredient that's required for corporate unity. So we have individual unity, and we have corporate unity. And individual unity requires deference to my fellow brothers and sisters. And corporate unity requires that I surrender my individual ideas to the wisdom of the collective body of the church. 
So individual unity and corporate unity. Let's talk about the individual unity. The deference to those around me. Go with me to Luke chapter 22. Let's look at this story together. Luke chapter 22. Christ is making his way into the upper room. The disciples have kind of separated themselves a little bit away from him. But Christ, who knows all things, knows what they're discussing. They're arguing over who's going to be the greatest. They're discussing about who's the one that should have the final say over religious matters and beliefs that the disciples have. Who should be the one that can say, hey, this is what we're going to do and everyone else has to get in line. They're bickering among themselves about the importance. You see, we hear, oh, who's going to be the greatest? And we think of what happens in kindergarten or maybe on the school playground when there's arguing that's going on. And we think, oh, yeah, that's what kids do. And the disciples are acting like, kind of like kids. But you got to remember, in their culture today, whoever was the greatest was the one who set the rules. And you are the one who is higher than someone else than what you said the others were supposed to do. And so what they were really arguing over is who has the final say over what is supposed to happen in our group. Should we listen to Judas? Judas thought he should have the final say. He was the most qualified. Desire of Ages, that wonderful book on the life of Christ, it's described that Judas had gone through each of the disciples. He summarized all of their weaknesses in his mind, and he'd come to the conclusion that really, at the end of the day, Judas knew best. The rest just needed to kind of get in line with him. Or maybe it was Peter who always had something to say. Or maybe it was the sons of thunder that wanted to be on the left and the right side of Christ. Are you there in Luke chapter 22? As they're making their way into the upper room, they're hanging back just a little bit from Christ. We're in verse 24. Now, There was also a dispute among them as to which of them should be considered the greatest. Christ said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those who exercise authority over them are called benefactors, but not so among you. On the contrary, who is the greatest among you? Let him be as the younger, and he who governs is he who serves. For he who is greatest, he who sits at the table, or he who serves. Is it not he who sits at the table? And yet I among you am the one who serves. Christ sees this division. He knows that they've been arguing. And so as they sit down there, and we talk about this at communion, so I won't spend a lot of time recounting the story because you know it. He sits there at the table. The disciples are looking at each other and something is becoming acutely aware to everyone except no one is willing to acknowledge it. They had forgotten to hire a servant to wash each other's feet. Now, we look at that in in our society, touching someone's foot or having the bottom of your foot isn't considered a huge insult. But in ancient societies, one of the highest insults that you could give a person was to, and I won't do it in case someone here is from that culture, I'll aim it the other way, but it was to show the bottom of your foot, sandal, or shoe at that person intentionally. It was telling that person, you are worse than the dust that I am walking on. You are worth nothing to me. You are, and right along with that, the next thing that would be considered right there at the bottom would be washing the feet of this person. And so the disciples, they've just been arguing about who's the greatest. They're all waiting for someone else to step in. In Christ, because he understands that oneness is more important than my pride. Humbles himself to serve. 
He gets down. He takes off the sandals of the first disciple, and you can hear a shock go through the room. As Christ begins to wash each of the disciples' feet, the reality comes home to the mind of every single person there that if they're going to be like Christ, they're going to have to get over the fact of who has the final say and begin to defer to the person around them and do what is best not for themselves, but for the person in their environment. You see, unity at an individual level, how do we have unity among ourselves here in the church, is that it only comes when I finally get over myself. Church, that's my biggest issue is getting over me. And it might be your biggest challenge too. I don't know. I wouldn't want to judge that. And finally saying, you are more important than I am. And that's easy to talk about. It's a whole nother matter when I'm brought face to face with something that I hold on to very, very strongly. It's easy maybe even to do it among other people that are less close to us. Church, you know where this is hardest to implement? With our spouses in our own home. The hardest place for unity to arrive is how we treat the people that we're married to. How I treat my wife should be like Jesus. What does Paul say about how the husband is supposed to love the wife and give himself for her as Christ gave himself for the church? When was the last time that you died to what you felt were your rights for your spouse? And I'm not just talking to the husbands. As important as it is, men, for you to hear that, I'm also talking to the wives. If we would quit waiting for the other person to die to their desires and say, Lord, help me die what a difference could come into our homes. This is from Adventist Home, page 83, paragraph 1, talking about homes. In many families, there is not that Christian politeness, that true courtesy, that deference and respect for one another that would prepare its members to marry and make happy families of their own. You know where you prepare to have a happy family if you're a young person here? What you do in your home. In the place of patience, kindness, tender, courtesy, and Christian sympathy and love, there are sharp words, clashing ideas, and a criticizing dictatorial spirit that comes into the home. Church, how can we have oneness in the church if we don't even have oneness going on within our homes between us and our children or between us and our spouses? The oneness of the church is a reflection of what's happening in the home. If we want oneness in our church, then we must first become one in our homes, among our spouses, and among our children. When was the last time that your wife asked you to fold the laundry and you said, I'm going to die to my desire and my need to get something else done and I'm going to sacrifice to get this done for my wife? Now maybe you love doing laundry, so put in whatever you don't like doing. When was the last time that your child came in all hot and bothered and angry about something and instead of responding in anger, you had calmness and the Spirit of Christ 
and you reflected the love. It doesn't mean you give them their way. Church, we are not indulgent. But it means that we interact in the Spirit and the love of Christ in our interactions with each other. I want to read something from Ministry of Healing, page 483, that touches on another area. Every association of life calls for the exercise of self-control, forbearance, and sympathy. Now, the following two sentences cut some areas in my life that I needed to hear. We differ so widely in disposition, habits, education that our ways at looking at things vary. We judge differently. Now, let's pause there. I am going to judge one thing as important, and you're probably going to look at that and say, I don't think that's quite as important. I actually think the other area, which you don't think is important, is important. And you know how God's balance comes in is by me and you deferring to each other. And through that, oneness comes in, and we actually both become more balanced as a result. We judge differently. Now, listen to these next four words. Our understanding of truth, our ideas in regard to the conduct of life are not in all respects the same. What you think is important and what I think is important may be very different, but I need to have the deference and respect to understand that God is guiding you and trust that God will guide you. I'm not the one to fix you and you're not the one to fix me. We take it to the Lord in prayer. Are you with me, church? Now, let me be clear, there is a place for truth to be presented. But how we present that truth must be with deference and appreciation of the walk that that person has with Jesus Christ. There are no two whose experiences alike in every particular. The trials of one are not the trials of another. The duties that one finds light are to another most difficult and perplexing. So frail. So ignorant, so liable to misconception is human nature that each should be careful in the estimate he places upon another. We little know the bearing of our acts upon the experience of others. What we do or say may seem to us of little moment. When could our eyes be open? We should see that upon it depended the most important results for good or for evil. Remember that the next time someone comes up to you and has some theory that they start saying, and you listen to that, and you go, how in the world can you believe that? Remember that they're frail, just like you. And their way of looking at the world is going to be different, just like your way of looking is different from them. You see, the individual responsibility for unity among each one of us as members is to have the deference of Christ, to serve in the mind of Christ. I don't have time, but Philippians chapter 2 is another powerful verse that lines up with what we're talking here. Read it at home on your own. That mind of Christ must be in us who is willing to humble Himself and come all the way down to the point of the death of the cross. We must have deference to the people around us. I must move on though because there's another point that we must touch on before we end. And that is, for there to be church unity, there must be a willingness to surrender my individual ideas to the wisdom that God lays down in His church. Go with me to Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 17. You see, the Bible very clearly lays out that God is a God of order. 
Sometimes in our society, especially in our society today, there has been a growing idea that each one of us should do whatever we would like that's been adopted by the far left and it's also being adopted by the far right. These perspectives that I should have the right to individually do what I want. God does not operate that way, church. God operates through a structure. He makes us each individuals. Each one of us are to reflect His character. But in the way that God sets it up, we are to also submit to His corporate structure. In heaven, the angels obey God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Do they not, church? And we also know from the Bible that it's not just God the Father and God the Son and then everyone else is equal. It's clearly laid out that there are orders of angels. Lucifer was the second in command to the Godhead. He was over a set of individuals. And then under him were other angels that were leaders and other angels that were leaders all the way down until every angel was connected in God's order of government. You see this repeated in the Old Testament with Moses from his father-in-law having him set up the Jethro principle where each of the camp was divided up among leaders and they went all the way up to Moses at the top. God works that way. Maybe one should say all the way down with Moses at the bottom. God works through structure. Now, are you there in Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 17? If you are, say amen. Paul says this, Hebrews 13, 17. Obey those who what? Rule where? Now, you might wonder, what is this referring to? Is he just referring to those who are in the government? No, that's in Romans chapter 13. What he's referring to here is those who are in the church. Notice this. We can find this out by continuing reading. And be submissive, for they watch out for your what, church? Who are the ones that look out for the souls of the members, or who should? This is church structure. They are the ones who watch out for your souls as those who must give an account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. Church unity requires the surrendering of what I individually want to the wisdom of the church. So long as, and I must put this in here, there is not a clear, thus saith the Lord, that forbids me to surrender. Are we all on the same page now? Let me look at this. One of the hardest areas to cover is the area of submitting to the decisions of God's church. On one side, it is easy to do when the church agrees with what I believe and someone else isn't in line with what I think the church should do and they happen to come down on my side. So it's easy for me to then say, you need to get in line. But what do I do when the church does something I don't believe they should do when the corporate church makes a decision And I disagree with that decision. This is where it becomes tough. And this is where unity is tested. Listen to this. Testimonies, Volume 4, page 19, paragraph 2. And I know I'm reading a number of quotes, and you know I normally don't do this, but I couldn't say it better than these different references. Listen to this. If the world could see perfect harmony existing in the church of God, it would be a powerful evidence to them in favor of Christian religion. Dissensions, unhappy differences, and petty church trials dishonor our Redeemer. All these may be avoided if self is surrendered to God and the followers of Jesus obey the voice of the church. Now notice this here. Unbelief. What is the word church? Unbelief suggests that individual independence increases our importance. 
that it is weak to yield our own ideas of what is right and proper to the verdict of the church. Now this was very convicting to me. Because this is an area I've struggled with, just to be blunt. But to yield to such feelings and views is unsafe and will bring us into anarchy and confusion. Christ saw that unity and Christian fellowship were necessary to the cause of God. Therefore, He enjoined it upon His disciples. And the history of Christianity from that time until now proves conclusively that union only is their strength. Now this last sentence. Let individual judgment submit to the authority of the church. Self must be surrendered. My individual judgment must be submitted to the authority of the church. Why? Because for the prayer of Christ to be answered, God has put together a structure that makes decisions on this earth. Have churches made mistakes? Of course they have. But who's responsible to correct and fix a mistake if the church has made one? Me or God? Who's the one who puts authorities up in a church? Me or God? Romans chapter 13 and verse 1 is very clear that God is the one who sets up the authorities. And that no authority exists except that which is appointed by God. When this is the key to me, when we struggle with the decisions that a church is making, instead of getting all emotionally worked up and angry about it, I say, God, this is your fight, not mine. This is your church, not mine. This church goes through to the end, and I know that you will fix it in your time. My job is to pray for the church and do all I can to answer the prayer of Christ of John 17 of building a unity among the brokenness of this world so that we might shine brightly. Yes, the church, and when I say the church, I'm referring to the church corporate and the church individual. There have been decisions that I have strongly, strongly disagreed with that the churches have made in various times and various places of my life. Times when I have walked away saying, well, I know they did that wrong. And as I've studied this this last week, God has convicted me deeply that I was wrong. And I need the Spirit of Jesus to change my heart. I must submit my individual ideas because frankly, this is God's structure. Acts of the Apostles, this is the last quote I'll read, but this one's so important I cannot skip it. There have ever been in the church those who constantly incline toward individual independence. They seem unable to realize that independence of spirit is liable to lead the human agent to have too much confidence in himself and to trust in his own judgment rather than to respect the counsel and highly esteem the judgment of his brethren, especially of those in the offices that God has appointed for the leadership of his people. God has invested Who's done it, church? God has invested His church with special authority and power which no one can be justified in disregarding and despising. For he who does this despises the voice of God. I didn't say that. Page 163. Acts of the Apostles, page 163, paragraph 2 and 3. Those who are inclined to regard their individual judgment as supreme are in grave peril. It is Satan's studied effort. Satan studies how to do this. Church, don't miss this. It is Satan's studied effort to separate 
such ones from those who are channels of light whom God has wrought to build up and extend his work in the earth. To neglect or despise those whom God has appointed to bear the responsibilities of leadership in connection with the advancement of the truth is to reject the means that he has ordained for the help, encouragement, and strength of his people. For any worker in the Lord's cause to pass these by and to think that his light must come through no other channel than directly from God is to place himself in a position where he is liable to be deceived by the enemy and overthrown. The Lord in his wisdom has arranged that by means of close relationship that should be maintained by all believers, Christians shall be united to Christian and church to church. Thus, the human instrumentality will be enabled to cooperate with the divine. Every agency will be subordinate to the Holy Spirit and all believers, listen to this, will be united in an organized and well-directed effort to give to the world the glad tidings of the grace of God. Lord, save me from my individual ideas. Dear Jesus, I confess that I have often been independent of nature. Help me to think of others better than myself and to submit to your leading through this church. I've said this has been a difficult journey for me. Those of you who know me well know I'm very independent naturally. If I think that something's wrong, I generally don't have a problem speaking up. And that doesn't mean that we shouldn't speak up. But once the decision has been made, we should trust God if we think it's wrong to fix it because frankly, I might be wrong and they might be right. My job is to submit and trust God. Does this mean that I go against the direct command of God? No, but it does mean that the directive must be so clear that there's no mistaking it, and then I submit and trust God to fix the mistake. I want to be a part of answering the prayer of Christ in John 17, and I believe you do too. And so as we close, I have an appeal that I'm asking myself and I'm asking you. Every head bowed, every eye closed. I believe the greatest days of Lansing are in front of us. But we haven't seen what God wants to do through this church yet. As we come down to the end of time and Jesus is going to come soon, I believe that God wants to use this church in incredible ways. But it starts with the decision and then a prayerful action of saying, Lord, teach me how to answer the prayer of Christ of unity. How's it with you? Have you, like me, been convicted that you've allowed self to step too much into the process? The appeal is simple. If you would like to raise your hand and say, Lord, I commit this morning to strive by your grace to develop new habits, new ways of thinking, and to study how I can allow you to answer the prayer of Christ in my life. Because it's Christ that does it in us, not we ourselves. If you want to join me in, in asking God to help us make that commitment, striving for unity, 
of answering the prayer of Christ, would you raise your hand up and down? I want to pray for you. Father in heaven, you see our hands. You know our hearts cry. Father, you know how I and we have tried to defend ourselves, to push our own ideas. You know that there have been times when the church has made a decision and there have been strong movements to go differently. Father, here we submit and we ask that You will teach us, heal us, forgive us, change our thinking that we might answer the prayer of Christ. That we might become one. That we might be ready to be used by You in the greater Lansing area. Oh, our Father, Fall upon us, I pray. And I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. You have been listening to Phil Mills, pastor of Lansing Seventh-day Adventist Church. If you enjoyed this sermon, why not visit his church this coming Sabbath or a church near you listed on strongtowerradio.org. You will find the church at 5400 West St. Joe Highway in Lansing, Michigan, and their church service begins at 1050 a.m. Access their website at lansingadventist.org. This program has been a Strong Tower Radio production.